would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 14, which is where we'll spend our time this morning. Acts chapter 14, and uh, we'll look and examine verses 21 through 28, but we'll read 19 through 28 to start us out before I exposit the text. I wanted to just share with you, I had the privilege of going on a recent field trip with one of my sons to the College Football Hall of Fame there in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, observed uh, not only that they have a, the, the uh, Hall of Fame, but they had a wall of fame for all these famous coaches. Looked up on that wall, and there stood Bear Bryant. So you know I had to take a picture of it and send it to Woody Buchanan since uh, he had a chance to uh, do a fullback under his leadership. But uh, it was just intrigued about Bear Bryant. Everybody's talking about Bear Bryant, Bear Bryant, Alabama. And so discovered that this famous and very successful coach often told reporters, you know what he said? He said, I would croak and fall over in a month if I were to quit coaching. That was his deal. He would tell reporters and they would often record him saying, man, he would die if you take him from coaching within a month. And after uh, his 25 years as a head coach at his alma mater there at Alabama, uh, Bryant announced that he would be stepping down at the end of the season. And on December 29th of 1982, he coached Alabama uh, this last Liberty Bowl against Illinois. And then on January the 26th of that next year, guess what happened? Had a massive heart attack and he died. Now, I'm not trying to say that he was a prophet. You know, I won't go as far as to say that. But it was true that anybody around Bear Bryant as a coach realized that he loved the game of football. He loved it so much that when you were around it, you loved the game because he loved it. It consumed him. Everything about the game he loved, and he loved to teach it. There are many people that not only learned under his leadership as players, but they went out to be coaches, and they coached other people because he was that passionate about what he did. So much that he said, if I stop doing this, I need to be dead. But you know what? Every one of us needs a, a reason, a cause to, to live, a, a purpose that keeps us going even when times get tough, even when we face obstacles that hinder us and keep us when life is tough. These obstacles we're able to overcome when we have a singularity of focus. But you know what that cause is? You know, some people will get it wrapped up in their occupation. Some people, their cause is the friendships that they have or the relationships that they make. Or they take some political cause that they run for the rest of their life. But you know what Jesus has given his disciples? It's one cause that should consume our life, and that's making disciples for his great name. That's to be a faithful witness. That's what Jesus Christ has given us, which is the highest calling, the highest ambition, the highest activity that any of us should be engaged in. He gave us that and that we should be his witnesses and making disciples until his return. Well, we're going to see here that Paul and Barnabas took that charge serious. And that type of dedication and pursuit was on display in their life, and we're going to follow their example uh, from the Word of God today. But let me read Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. It reads as follows. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church and having prayed and with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came through Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, 
I come now just asking for divine help. Give your servant the ability to have clear thinking, precise speech, boldness, and courage to uh, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we behold your goodness in the world, that you would open our eyes, that we would uh, see wondrous things from your law, that it would have instruction that would inform our thinking, Lord, and motivate our living. And so we love you, and we praise you for this time of worship. We ask that your spirit would empower this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about this morning's message, I've entitled the sermon, A Faithful Witness. A Faithful Witness. You know, before we begin, I, I want to talk about a faithful witness, but I've got to start with two myths that I need to dispel at the beginning. And the first myth is this. You know, sometimes we make the mistake of separating evangelism and discipleship. We say, oh, you know, well, God has is, is, is called me to evangelize. Other people kind of disciple. So I go out and share the good news. And then discipleship is kind of, you know, when you help a person grow in their faith. And so you divorce the two. But you don't see that example when you look at Paul and Barnabas or any other in the New Testament. You see that, that those two exist together. You're sharing the good news and you're maturing saints. That's part of making disciples. It's not one or the other. They're both working in cooperation. And the second myth is this. Sometimes we make the mistake of separating the Christian and the disciple maker. They say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a regular old Christian. Not just a regular Christian, I'm just a regular old Christian with the O in front of it to make emphasis. Lord, I'm just a regular old Christian. I, I'm not educated. I'm not articulate like that brother or that sister. You know, I, I, I'm not a people person. I really kind of like to read theology and kind of, you know, have my own moments, whatever that means. But they think disciple makers have some super spiritual gift, some sort of great anointing from God. Hey, that's the disciple maker. They got some great anointing. But nothing could be further from the truth. If you are called by Christ, you are to be his witness. And if you are to be his witness, you are called to make disciples. That's every Christian's responsibility. Every Christian's role. That's every Christian's privilege. That's what Jesus Christ has said to us. And even mentioned that in Matthew 4, 19. He said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. He didn't say follow me. And then, you know, if you get around to it, go and fish for men. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So if you're not fishing for men, you're not submitting to Christ and what he's wanting to accomplish in you by seeing that gospel replicated coming through your lips with express purpose of helping make disciples and maturing them in the faith. That's what Jesus said. That's our calling. It's our task. It's similar to the, the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all these nations. And guess what you do? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Making disciples, teaching obedience. Make disciples, maturing them up, teaching them to obey. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's the work of the Christian. We do that over and over again. You see, a, a disciple, a simple definition is this. You're a lifelong learner of Christ, teaching others how to be a lifelong learner of Christ. That's what the disciple is. People try to complicate it, be like, oh, you've got to be like 10 years in the faith before you can disciple. You can evangelize two years in, but you can't disciple till you're 10 years in. That's not what Christ says. He says, follow me, and you'll do this work of fishing for men. If you got saved yesterday, you should be making disciples today, determining how you can be used of the Lord. And that's the great commission. It's not the great option or the great recommendation. It's the great commission that Jesus Christ has given his disciples, and he only has one way that he's going to make disciples, and that's through us making disciples. He could easily beam a light bolt from heaven and snatch people out of their sin and make them repent, but he says, I'm going to use my people to go out and share this faithful message, and they're going to come to know me and grow up in Christ. And Luke writes, really, as we're here in the book of Acts, you can see in the beginning in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' own words. He says, you will be my witnesses. He says, you're going to start here in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the, of the earth. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses. That's what you are. And that word witness, it, it, it's the Greek word martureo. 
which is where we get a martyr, a person that, that dies for a cause. Do you realize that we're martyrs for the faith? <laughs> That's really what it is. We're, we're to kind of be that type of witness. Adversity is built in the Christian occupation. He didn't call us to a life of convenience. It wasn't convenient for him. And we're not going to be convenient as we follow him. And it wasn't an option for the disciples. And we'll see that Paul and Barnabas, they took this responsibility and this privilege very serious. And right now here in the book of Acts, we're about at the halfway point. It's 28 chapters, 14, halfway. That's my math for the day. I'm a preacher man. That's all I got. That's all you got, math folks. Uh, but we're at the halfway point. And as he's going through this, he's already, he's talking about this first missionary journey that Paul is on. He's given it to his completion and showing what took place. And as we see this, uh, we're going to see that really here in the book of Acts, uh, this is descriptive language. It isn't prescriptive for the church, but as we look at how uh, Luke is describing this first missionary journey for Paul, it helps us to understand that we can imitate what we see with Paul and Barnabas. Almost like what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of who? Christ. And so we're going to imitate them this morning by understanding what it means to be a, a faithful witness. But what we need to know today is that all Christians are called to be witnesses of Christ. But the question for us is, what kind of witness are you? What kind of witness are you? Well, this morning, I want to show us three ways that we can imitate Paul and Barnabas so that we can be a faithful witness, even for Christ this day. Well, the first activity I want us to see in this text is that a faithful witness makes disciples. A faithful witness, he spends his life making disciples. That's what he does. He discharges that duty in order to make other learners of Jesus Christ. And the way that the faithful witness makes disciples is by explaining the gospel. Look there at verse 21. It says, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. They said they had preached the gospel. They actually proclaimed this, this news. You know, they analyzed where people were in their understanding or lack thereof of God. And then they completed those gaps. If you look back in Acts chapter 2, uh, you notice that Peter was preaching to a, a predominantly Jewish audience. So he could use Old Testament allusions. He kind of quoted Psalms. He quoted David because he knew that these Jewish people grew up hearing about these psalms. And so they understood. And so he could go right from the psalms and, and lead right on up to Jesus Christ, this Lord, this Messiah that you crucified, because they understood who this Messiah was. Well, in this case, in Acts chapter 14, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they're dealing with Gentiles. People don't know about God and, and at least the God of the Bible. They don't know about the God of the Jews and the Messiah that's to come. And so he had to complete what was lacking in their understanding. And you can get an ex example of what they said. If you look there in in Acts chapter 14, you just back up to verse 15. This is at a place to where, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they had shared the gospel and, and um, it was amazing. They had, had actually healed a man that was lame and he got up and started walking and these guys started surrounding him saying, these must be gods. They call, uh, you know, Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes because he was the, the speaker. And so they're about to start bringing out these sacrifices and worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And, and look at what verse 15 says. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. You see that repentance that's built right into that gospel? He says, you're, you're about to bring these sacrifices and offer them up to another man. Do you realize that that's vain? That's empty. It's dead. But the living God is the one that you need to turn your worship to. And so they understood how they could turn their focus from these vain idols to worshiping a living God. And he goes on to help them to understand that this living God is the one who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. They gave them a big view of this God of creation. That's what they did. And that's what we do when we share the gospel with people. We figure out what's lacking in their understanding and we help complete what's lacking. Now, Luke doesn't give us all the details of what they said, but ultimately he had to proclaim Christ because he said they preached the gospel to that city and many disciples were, were made. It's probably similar to what we see in Acts 16.1 when Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They proclaimed that message and many people came to know Jesus Christ. I just find that amazing that it wasn't like they got up and did some dog and pony show. They didn't come and give some theatrics. 
They didn't say that Paul gave this eloquent speech and many disciples were made. They said they preached the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be convinced that the gospel is powerful enough for people to come to know Jesus Christ. They don't need gimmicks. They don't need tactics and theatrics. They just need the gospel proclaimed. We should be sharing that gospel. We ought to let them know that, that there's a God of creation that's holy and righteous. And that that holy and righteous God has a, is a perfect standard of righteousness that man must live by. But can any man live under those perfect righteous standards? No. That's the bad news. And then not only can you not live up to those righteous standards of perfection, but you'll be condemned in eternity in hell and condemnation, paying for every single sin as a result. That's the bad news. But then we should turn the corner and let them know, but there's Jesus Christ who came and his nature was untouched by sin because he was born to a virgin. And he lived a perfect life of holiness. And he offers that up to anyone who would believe in him. He says, I'll take upon you all the sins that are yours. I'll take up upon myself and I'm going to give you my righteousness. That's the gospel. That's what Paul and Barnabas was letting these Gentiles know. And that's what we should tell people. We don't stop there. We say your responsibility is to repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin. Repent, turn away from these vain things and serve a living God and believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And you'll be saved. You'll be saved. That's the gospel. When was the last time that gospel came across your lips? When was the last time you shared the gospel to someone in hopes that they would, would come to know Jesus Christ because you knew that that was the only solution for their soul? You didn't do it because you wanted to have them come to church. You didn't do it because you wanted to hear yourself talk. You didn't want to just recite the gospel message. You wanted to see them go from dead to live in Jesus Christ. That's what you wanted. That's what Paul did. And he said they preached the gospel to that city. More than likely, they spent hours in various settings with different people sharing the gospel. And I can only imagine they would probably would share the gospel and talk to them and couple hours later, they come back and say, hey, what did you think about what I said? Over and over again, they were sharing the gospel. They knew that, that this good news is worthy to save men all around the world. That you know that this is, this is Paul and Barnabas. You might be saying, well, that's the apostles. That's, I can't do that. I'm not a missionary. I'm not an apostle. I'm just a regular old Christian. Didn't I just tell you that, preacher man? Regular old Christian? Well, we'll turn to Romans chapter 10. I want to show you that this is just uh, what the task is for the regular old Christian in Romans chapter 10, you'll see that. Romans 10, Paul had just written to the Romans, letting them know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then he goes on there to verse 11, and he says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Guess what? If they believe in Jesus, they won't be disappointed. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Praise his holy name for that. Because I don't know about y'all, but I ain't Jewish. But I'm benefiting from this gospel message because it has the power to open my eyes up to help me to see that this Messiah has come for me too. He says, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in all riches for all who call upon him. He said, this is for everybody, every nation, tribe, and tongue, all people groups. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Isn't that good news? That's the power of the gospel. But guess what? People out there haven't heard of it. He even goes on there in verse 14 and says, how will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a what? Preacher. Without a what? Preacher. Without a preacher. Oh, you mean without a, a, a preacher in the pulpit like this, right? And you mean a preacher like, like the missionary that goes overseas and talks? That's that, that kind of preacher? the one that's eloquent, the one that, that has all the homiletics down. Paul is saying, how will they hear without a preacher? That's a person that's a regular old Christian sharing this good news of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I commend to you that if you're just a regular old Christian, you're a preacher. You're a preacher. And people won't come to know Jesus Christ unless you preach the gospel. We should be involved in the message of bringing the good news of hope to souls who desperately need to hear it. That's what our job is. If we're going to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ, we've got to herald this gospel message. We herald it. 
We, we trumpet the good news of this gospel. We've got to be like Paul, as he said in 116 of Romans, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God to all those who believe. First the Jew, then the, the Greek or the Gentile. He says, I'm not ashamed. And guess what, believer? You can't be ashamed of the gospel and proclaim the gospel at the same time. You're going to be one or the other. Either you're going to keep that gospel quiet and say, well, I would share, but hey, they might talk bad about me at work. That's been a shame of the gospel. Oh, I would go to the family reunion and talk about Jesus, but man, they may not include me in some of the jokes and some of the family time. That's been ashamed of that gospel message. Paul said, I'm not ashamed because that very gospel will bring people to the light of the glorious light of Jesus Christ. And we need to know that. We need to share that, proclaim it, herald it. How faithful are you in explaining this gospel message? Believer, that's our task, explaining it. And you don't have to have gone to seminary. You don't have to have taken 10 courses on evangelism. If the gospel saved you, you can share that gospel and help it to save someone else because that's what God has given in the power of this message. I love it how we go out as our ambassador ministry here at HBC. We go out on Fridays and Saturdays and with the sole purpose of making disciples, we go out and we share the gospel. And we, then we follow up. You know, it used to be a situation where we would we'd keep the, these ticker marks and be like, all right, did they express high interest? Did they express medium interest? Or did they express low interest when we share the gospel? Uh, now we're so desperate, we just say, did they show any kind of interest? I mean, you know, when we, when we share the gospel, they, they, they smile at us when we share the gospel. Okay, let's follow up. That's, hey, they smile. They smile. Let's go back next week. They smile when I share the gospel. I mean, he, he kind of, he didn't yawn. You know, he didn't yawn. He said, amen. Let's go back and follow up. But that's what we do. We explain the gospel message. But that's what we should be doing all of our life. But not only are we explaining this gospel, go back to Acts 14. You'll see that it said that they preached the gospel in that city by explaining the gospel. But you realize that they were expecting conversions? They were expecting conversions. Sometimes we share the gospel and we just say, oh, well, the Lord will do with it as he, may, as he will. Leave it up to the Lord. Paul and Barnabas, they went out and they shared the gospel, but they were expecting converts. It said they'd made many disciples. That word here is a present active participle. They were making disciples. It was an ongoing activity. And it said that they weren't just making disciples. They were making many learners, followers of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that that term, many disciples, that's up to the Lord, right? He's the one that has the results. We're just required to be faithful in this task. But at the end of the day, he's the one that, that brings the masses to him. But our job is to, to go out. But we've got to understand that God is a redeemer. God has, he's a redeemer. He wants to, to win men and women to himself. And we are confident that God has many people in this city that he wants to draw to himself. But are you faithful in proclaiming that gospel message and expecting people to come to know Christ? You know, brothers and sisters, we get an opportunity to see a person go from death to life from a child of Satan to a child of God, a slave to sin to then being transformed to being a slave of righteousness, from being an enemy of God to, to now being his friend. How many of you have, have, have had a chance to experience the beauty of that, seeing someone that God used you instrumentally to bring the gospel and you saw them come to life? You saw them change their ways. It's the most amazing feeling on this earth to be able to help someone to plead for their soul, to see them living from death to death, and you pray and say, Lord, please change their ways. And then you share the gospel and they come to know Jesus Christ. It's an amazing feeling. And it's something that he wants us to do over and over again, not because we feel good in it, not because we want them to be running to this church, not because we want to go out and say, look at how great of a gospel herald I am but it's because Jesus Christ is worthy of their worship. The lamb that was slain is worthy of their worship. There are people now that are worshiping vain things, and they need to offer that up to the king. They need to offer that worship to the king. We share the gospel. You see, mission exists because worship doesn't. If worship was there, we wouldn't need to go. But we go because worship needs to be offered to Jesus Christ. Stop living on those things that are going dead to dead to dead. Talking to 
People that say, man, I've just been hitting life on repeat, doing the same sins. That's because someone needs to go and share the gospel, help them to understand that they can be redeemed from all that. And then when we do, expect them to be converted. Expect them to come to know Christ. Yeah, I'm sure that they went up over and over again and talked to people, and the Holy Spirit worked in their heart, and many disciples were made. You know, sometimes we share the gospel, and we just don't think that they need to come. You know, why don't you turn to John 4? I'll show you an example of this. You can go back in the gospel of John. Go left in your Bible. Jesus was walking with his disciples, and here it is. They were walking with the Lord of glory, sharing this good news. And, and sometimes they weren't convinced that they were going to make, you know, disciples. There were going to be other followers. But look here at John 4. I don't have a time to go through this whole thing, but this is the scenario where Jesus meets the woman at the well, right? And she's there, and she's a Samaritan woman. They don't really have any interaction with the Jews. And, and the disciples are like, hey, man, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm about to go get some snacks. Jesus, you want something? We're about to go get, some, get something to eat. You, can we bring you something? And Jesus is like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, I'm doing the thing that gives me, that satisfies my appetite. And so he's sharing the, the good news of the kingdom. And they go on to get a snack. But when they come back, he looks at them and he says, look, in verse 35 of John 4, he says, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes to harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Jesus was saying, I just shared the good news with this Samaritan woman and she went to the town and told everybody. She was so convinced that the Messiah is here that she went and told everybody immediately. And guess what? These folks are coming. And what do you think the disciples were doing besides eating their snack? You know, kind of like, oh, Jesus, you got a point. They're looking at all these Samaritan men coming and he says, look, there's four months that usually it takes before you plant a seed and see it grow up to where you can have an opportunity to eat its fruit. He's saying it's not that way with the gospel. You plant the seed of the gospel today, guess what, brother? Someone could actually come to know Jesus Christ that very hour. That's expecting conversion of souls. He says there's an immediacy to, to this expectation of souls. And not only that, but there's, a, there's an urgency. He says, lift up your eyes. You need to look up. Some of us, we go past dead people at our workplace every day. Dead people in our neighborhood. We see them sad, just walking their dogs, just ain't got nothing. But, well, I guess I don't know what I'm going to do. And we're just like, well, I pray for them. Share the gospel and expect for them to come to know Jesus Christ. That's the immediacy, the urgency, and even shows the diversity there. He says the, the fields are white for harvest. The disciples say, man, I, I know you, Jesus. You didn't want us to come and share with these Samaritan people, did you? And Jesus says, by golly, yes. These people need the message of the kingdom. And we should be thinking that way. There are people that may show up to our church that then we might say, wow, they don't even look like they love the Lord. Surprised that they're even here. We would say that, but you realize that sometimes the most uh, least likely candidate would make the most likely convert in God's eyes. We judge them with our eyes, but guess what? They could have said that about you. They could have said that about me for sure before I came to know Christ. I had friends that said, man, I ain't sharing the gospel with that brother. He is in the world. He off, up, and in the world. He a triple prepositional phrase. He off, up, in the world. They would have come to me. But then when they brought the gospel, guess what? It changed everything. And now I'm sharing the gospel today. Praise God that they didn't, they didn't go and say, ah, he's not worth me talking the gospel to him about. They shared the gospel, and I'm a living witness of that. We should be the same way. That's that urgency. They expected conversions. You can go back to Acts 14. And not only this, but they exercised boldness. Boldness. They had a sense of of, of resilience that took place. Look at what it says there in verse 21. It says, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Now, this might seem like a simple statement. They just returned to the cities and started sharing the gospel. But, you know, we got to look back at verse 19 and 20. In verse 19, it said um, that they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, I don't know about you, but if I go in and share the gospel to a city, and they, they stoned me. See, they didn't stone him just to throw some rocks at him and quit. They stoned him. They thought he was dead, and they dragged him out and said, we're done with you. They literally thought he was dead. But if I go, I share the gospel, they throw stones at me, drag me out of a city as I'm dead. Guess what I'm thinking? Well, I guess the Lord don't want to save that city because I ain't going back there ever again. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking to myself. But look at what Paul and Barnabas do. They, they get right back up, and they return to the same city. Isn't that amazing? 
They had such uh, charisma and, 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 and fortitude and resilience to say, look, I am going to, to stare down at the face of that persecution just like Jesus Christ did with me. He went with resolve and faith like Flint to go to that cross because my soul was at stake. And Paul and Barnabas did the same thing. Shared the gospel. I'm sure that they were thinking that uh, the same persecution that they endured was going to even be worse for these new Christians. And they didn't want to leave them that way. So they returned back and built them up in truth. Isn't that amazing? That's just amazing that they went back with that amount of resilience, that amount of perseverance. You know, you think about that. It challenges me. It challenges me to say, man, do I just stop at the first no when I share the gospel? That should be a question to us all. How much resistance does it take for you to stop sharing the gospel? How much resistance? You go to somebody and share the gospel and they frown. You say, oh, well, I guess that's it. They frowned at me, Lord. Give me the next person. When they say no for the first time, how about when you're shunned from conversations? Do you stop at sharing the gospel? These, these men risk their lives because they said it's important to proclaim Jesus Christ. How much are we willing to sacrifice because we know that souls are at stake based on our ministry? That's the, the boldness that we need to have. And that's what it means to be a faithful witness who's making disciples. Well, that's the first activity that we see in being a faithful witness is that you need to be about engaging and making disciple, disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. The second activity we see is that a faithful witness is engaged in maturing disciples. He matures disciples. Not only does he make disciples, he matures them. You know, Jesus said that you should uh, make disciples and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's what we do. We, we need to be engaged in, in the work of helping someone else to mature in their faith. That's what this, this process is, and we see Paul and Barnabas do this well. They did so by strengthening the disciples through teaching. There in verse 22, it says, they strengthening the souls of the disciples. That word strengthening, it carries the idea of, of taking something that, that is unstable and weak and adding stability to it. You know, it says, I, I need to, to make sure that this is in a, a safe position to continue the work of the Lord. That's what they did. They went back to these disciples and they encouraged them in the faith. You know, we can see an example of that if you turn to Acts 15. Acts 15, if you just go right and look at verse 32. It's similar to what they said here. It says, Judas and, and Silas, also being prophets themselves, they encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. You see, you, you wonder why us preachers go long. Well, it's just, we, we're just trying to encourage you. That's all we're trying to do. I mean, you know, you wonder why we go 55, uh, 60 minutes, 65. I'll probably be going 70 today. I just want to really encourage your hearts today this morning, saints. That's all I want to do. I see somebody in the back like, brother, it's daylight savings time. Stick to your script and go ahead and be done in 40 minutes, brother. Get your 40 minutes in and call it a day. But really, they, they strengthened them with the word of God. And we see that all throughout Acts. In this verse 32, they strengthened the brethren. In verse 41 of that same chapter 15, it said they were traveling through Syria and Cilicia. And they were strengthening the churches. They were strengthening them with the teaching of the word of God. And that's the character of Scripture. It strengthens the soul. That's Psalm 19.8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, right? Psalm 119.28. My soul is weary with sorrow. He said, strengthen me according to your word, O God. That's what the word does. It, it strengthens the soul. It says, yes, I can believe in this God who saved me. I can worship him at the face of adversity. And that's what we should be doing is helping mature saints by giving them truth giving them truth. We help them through teaching and whatever we're learning in the word, that's what we should be passing on to other people, helping them to understand the, the character of God, understanding the commands of scripture. That's what we should be doing over and over again. And some of you might say, well, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a missionary. You're a regular old Christian. What regular old Christian insight are you getting from the Bible these days? Pass that out to somebody else who doesn't know as much as you. Just encourage them in that. It might come from your daily devotion. You, you've, you've been encouraged in the word of God this morning. Share that with someone else today. Build them up and strengthen them in their faith. That's what we do. We strengthen them through the teaching of the word over and over again. We're all preachers. And guess what? You found out today that we're all teachers. We're preachers and teachers. Even if you're just a regular old Christian. Preacher and a teacher because you're proclaiming this message of Jesus Christ. Making disciples and helping to mature them in their faith. 
Not only should we be strengthening them through the, through the teaching of the word, if you go back there and in uh, Acts 14, you see later in verse 22, it says that they were encouraging them to continue in the faith. So we're teaching them about what God commands, but we're also encouraging them through exhortation. That word encouraging, it means to, to call alongside of the work that you're doing. It says, I'm doing this work of, the, of, the, of making disciples, but let me call you alongside of this work as well. That's what it is, and, and to encourage you in the process. It wasn't enough for them to teach and exhort. They needed to bring people along. I love the way John MacArthur put it about exhortation. He said, exhortation is teaching's inseparable companion. He says, you know, we, we teach, but then we also got to exhort. You teach because you want to inform the mind as to what God expects, but you exhort so that you can challenge their living so that they can pull it off. Teaching and exhorting. That's what we do when we start maturing people and when they come into the faith. Teach them what to do and say, hey, you can do it. You can do this. And I see one of the greatest examples of this uh, here in, in 1 Thessalonians. If you go right in the scriptures there, you can go to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You go to 1 Thessalonians. And you can look in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Look what Paul is writing uh, with him and Sylvanus and Timothy when they visited Thessalonica. He said to them in verse 10, he said, Your witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Then he says this. He says in verse 11, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Those three terms explain how they were encouraging and maturing those saints. He says we were exhorting you. That exhorting is the same word that we saw back in and uh, acts to call alongside. He says sometimes in maturing disciples, you've got you to say, hey, come follow me in this task. Let's carry it out together. Come alongside me and do this work. I can recall a time listening to a, a life group leader couple that said that they had a, a couple in their life group, and they were just watching them week after week, giving good insights from the Scripture, making appropriate applications, coming in and, and making sure that they were encouraging the saints and and they said one week they went up to him and said, hey, you guys, y'all could, could easily be leaders in this life group ministry. And that couple said, oh, oh, no, not us, not us, oh, no. And at that point, they had excuses that would fill up this worship center. They was like, man, I got, you got baseball practice, I got, I got to work out, I got to go and do this, I got this at the house. I'm, I, and they just went on and on and on and on and on. And you know what that life group leader couple did? They said, yeah, that's okay. Uh, but guess what? You guys are leading next week, so uh, we're looking forward to, to hearing you guys uh, lead us through that the pulpit curriculum. And the couple kind of stepped back. They had the, the wide eyes of like, oh, my goodness. We're going to be leading next week? I mean, it was just, it was like, bing, 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 heart beating fast. And guess what happened? They laid down those excuses. They led that next week. And before you know it, they did it a few weeks after that again. And a few weeks after that again. And by God's grace, those, that couple is a life group leader today. They're life group leaders in the ministry. All because someone had the boldness to come alongside and mature them in the faith and say, come and do this work that God has called us to do. They brought them alongside of that work. They encouraged them in that. And now they have a great ministry here, and they're doing that with other people. That's that exhorting. And not only did they exhort them, he said they encouraged them in the work. That means to console them. That means to uh, some of you parents, you know how that is when you have to console your children. Maybe they played a big game, and, and they lost, and you've got to come alongside and encourage them and say, hey, but you worked and you did your very best. Or they took a great exam, and they didn't do so well, or or maybe they did a recital in an instrument and, and they didn't think they did as good as they would have liked. you got to come alongside of them. That's what we're to do when we're maturing saints. We're coming alongside of them. You don't call them to the task and then they fail in it and you say, ah, see, I told you, you should stick to something else. You shouldn't be making disciples anyway. That's not the work. They fail at it. That's okay. We come alongside and say, hey, I'll help you out. Think about this next time. That's the work of maturing saints, especially those that, that might fall into sin. We've got to help them out. And then the other one is that he says, not only do we exhort, we implore, encourage, but we implore you. Imploring means to, to give a strong test, testimony. He says, I'm going to tell you that this is what we must do, almost, almost with tears in the eyes. That's what that means, is a strong testimony. And I can remember a man that said when he was, a, he was referencing the time when he had first begun to be discipled by another older man in his life. He said, man, those first few sessions, you know what he did? He opened the scriptures up and he gave me principles but then he told me every single thing that he did 
that he shouldn't have done. He said, I don't want someone else to do as a young man in the faith. He said, those first few sessions, he was saying what not to do. Gave me a biblical principle. He looked me dead in my eyes and says, don't you make the mistake I did when I was your age. I wish that I can go back as a young man and redo some of these things. Don't you do it. How much do you think that young man responded to that, that strong testimony from that man? He was maturing him in the faith, telling him what not to do. And some of you might be saying, well, preacher man, I hear you saying I need to be making disciples, but you don't understand I've made a lot of mistakes in my walk. Well, guess what? You can help somebody else to make sure that they don't make those same mistakes in their walk. You can help them. Help mature someone else by, by learning the lessons. You got blood on your uniform? Help keep them from getting blood on their uniform in the faith. Show them what not to do so that they can follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You've got something that you can offer, brothers and sisters. It's about having a desire to love someone enough to speak truth in a loving way to help mature them in this faith with Jesus Christ. If you turn back to Acts 14, we'll see this on display. They're maturing saints. They did so not only encouraging them, but they let them know in a stark warning. In verse 22, it says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They let them know that this term tribulations, this means to be pressed in on all sides. They let them know, man, you're going to go through some things if you're going to come to know Jesus Christ. And that's biblical. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life will experience persecution. And it's going to be persecution for the one that's trying to share the gospel. I love how Sinclair Ferguson said it about the cost of discipleship. He said, spreading the gospel, which is free to those who receive it, is never cheap for those who spread it. It's going to cost us something. It's going to cost you to step in someone else's life and to help mature them in Christ. But guess what? That cost will never compare to the cost of the cross. Because Jesus Christ did that very same thing for us. Praise his holy name that he didn't say, ah, oh, that's going to cost me too much. I can't do this. Not this, Lord, I got to die for these people. He was willing to go with face like Flint, Flint to the cross with resolve because he loved you that much. Are you willing to do that with other brothers and sisters in this house? Help speak truth in their life to help them, correct them, and train them, grow them up in truth. It's going to cost you something. But at the same time, Jesus Christ laid the perfect cost down for us. Gave us an example to follow. People love the promises of, of Christ. But do you realize that the promise of Christ says that in this life there's going to be suffering? But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. There's going to be trials. There's going to be opposition. Your flesh don't want to do it. The world system don't want to do it. But Christ is worthy of you maturing saints for the glory of his name. Amen? That's what our work is. It's maturing saints for Christ and his glory. You know, how many of you can testify to that? Well, you realize that you've been ridiculed by coworkers, ostracized by family members, shunned by your neighbors, but you realize, man, it's worthy. It's worthy. I'm reminded of a hymn by Isaac Watts. It's called a Soldier. I am a soldier of Christ. He says, it's not on flowery beds of ease. But to sail through the bloody seas is the road for the good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's not a bed of ease that God has called us to, but through the bloody seas that we endure because it's worthy. It's worthy. It's a worthy cause. Paul and Barnabas knew that. And they realized and they taught, they exhorted, they encouraged, and they did it over and over again. Well, those are two activities that we see is to be a, a faithful witness. You want to make disciples and you also want to mature disciples. The last one, it's really brief. A faithful witness will not only make and mature disciples, but he will multiply discipleship. Look at verses 23 through 28. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know what they did? They entrusted these men with the faithful work. It wasn't enough for them to evangelize. It wasn't enough for them to evangelize and train. They said, we've got to evangelize, we've got to train, and then we've got to entrust this work. They realized that, that the ministry wouldn't continue in these Gentile cities unless they entrusted this work to faithful men. But notice a couple of things. They said they, they appointed elders, convinced that God wanted to see a plurality of leaders in a church. That's why you see the plural elders. And it wasn't just plural of elders. He said they did this in every church. They were convinced that there was a victory and a safety and a multitude of counsel, Proverbs 24, 6. And it kept the 
individual leader uh, from being able to have to bear that burden all by himself. He could share that among others and also prevents one man from lording it over a congregation. They were con convinced that this was the way. And I love it how we are able to partner with missionaries that uh, we see a beautiful thing when they go out and they share the gospel in these remote cities. They don't go out and say, man, I'm going to set up my church and I'm going to be the leader. I'm the pastor. You know what they do? They go out and share the gospel and they raise up an indigenous leader. They train him and then they leave it in his hands. And they say, you go do the very same thing over and over again. They get that church to where they're self-governing, self-sustaining, and self-propagating. That's what our missionaries do. And it's a praise to be able to see that. But you might be saying, well, hey, preacher man, I'm not a missionary. I just said that early in the sermon. Not a missionary, not an elder, not a pastor. Just a regular old what? Christian. Just a regular old Christian. Well, Paul gives us that example in, in 2 Timothy 2.2. You know what he says? He says, the things that you've heard and seen in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others to do the same also. He gives three principles in that 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, this is a ministry of endearment. He tells Timothy, he says, you're my son. My son. That's a term of endearment. You see, for, for Paul, Timothy wasn't a project. And that's how we have to be when we're, when we're multiplying this discipleship of ministry. There aren't projects, they're people. We come alongside, we get to know them. We share life with them. We have them in our home, we go to theirs. That's a ministry of endearment. But it's also a ministry of encouragement. He told Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in you in Christ Jesus. He knew Timothy had a, a problem of timidity because he was a young believer, and a young man, trying to tell these people how to follow Christ. If we're going to encourage and multiply the ministry, we've got to help people to, to stop looking at their inadequacy and look to the sufficiency that's in God through Christ. Turn away from the inadequacy. We all feel it. But look to the sufficiency that's ours in God. And that's what we need to be doing over and over again. People say, hey, brother, I, I know you want to encourage this ministry and entrust us in my hands, but I just can't do it. I, I just, I, I can't do it. We've got to help encourage them. Man, trust the work. You can do this. Let them know it's not about you. It's the strength of God in you. And then we've got to entrust that ministry into to faithful hands. And you might be saying, preacher man, but I'm a minister leader, but I just don't see faithful hands around me. Well, we'll make their hands faithful. Make their hands faithful. That's what you need to do. I'm reminded of a time I, I played football back in my, my middle school days. Yeah, yeah that's, that's hard to believe. I know. I uh, played football, small frame. That was a one and done season. I only did it one year. Uh, but I remember playing quarterback. And we had this wide receiver. He was fast as all get out. And he would always get to the right spot, but man, he just could not catch. I mean, we'd throw the ball to him, it would bounce out of bounds, toss it up in the air, the other team would get it. It was just like, come on, catch the ball. And I remember the coach still wanted to run that play that way. And I just said, coach, he can't catch. He doesn't have good hands. And I remember Coach Lane looked at me in my eye and he said, well, you need to make his hands good. I said, make his hands good. And he said, keep throwing it to him. And in practice, we would throw that ball to him. Every single day, multiple times, defense got tired. But then all of a sudden, he started to feel the weight of the team. He felt like, man, if this is my role, this is my responsibility, guess what he started to do? He started to catch that ball. Turned out to be a great receiver. Caught several touchdowns that year. Uh, but it was just amazing to see what happened when we made his hands good. He didn't know he could do it. Folks didn't believe in him initially. But after practice and persistence, he kept after it and he became a great receiver. That's the same way in ministry. We've got to entrust this work into hands. And they may not start out as faithful as they need to be, but if we keep it, they'll never be faithful. We need to delegate this ministry responsibility and say, you, brother, sister, can do this work. We need to replicate that ministry. And we're in a season right now where we need to see that happen. All across the church, people could come here and say, wow, that ministry, Hickory Bible Church, man, they do ministry well. But guess what? It's faithful hands. We need faithful hands that God can be using each and every day to make disciples, mature them, and then multiply the ministry because you're faithful. Now, I would say to you, if you're a ministry leader, are you looking around for an opportunity to help someone replicate the task so that Christ can be magnified and more disciples can be made? And if you're in a ministry, I would encourage you to go to that ministry leader and say, hey, you know, how can I... Uh, be more involved in the work of maturing disciples for the sake of Jesus Christ. Ask them. Ask your life group leader. 
Ask your flock leader. Ask your elders. Ask them, say, hey, how can I be involved greater in this work of multiplying discipleship right here at this church? Because that's what we want to see. You know, we don't want to have a whole bunch of people come in, right? Everybody's like, oh, I wish that this church would be filled with people. But guess what? If this church is filled with people, that means that all of us need to be discipling these people. And if all of us need to be discipling these people, we need to be at the work and at the task. That's what Christ would have us to do. I believe he's saved us. He's seeking after many people in this Unifor area, and he's going to draw them to this place. But we've got to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ by making disciples, maturing them in the faith, and multiplying this disciple ministry. If you're here today and you might be thinking to yourself, well, I've heard all these principles, but I can't really start the work of discipleship. But really, the message for you today isn't discipleship, it's fellowship. You need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ by turning from your sins, as we just saw in the scripture. Turning away from being the captain of your ship, look to Christ, repent, and be baptized and follow him for the rest of your days. And then for thus, uh, for those of us that, that are in Christ, be like what we saw here in the scriptures. Use these principles today to apply them to our life so that we can proclaim that message of the gospel by making disciples, maturing them as they are growing up in our church and in our ministry, being in ministry opportunities so that we can multiply that to other brothers and sisters. And let's do that until Christ comes home. Can we do that, church? Can we do that? Make disciples, mature them, and multiply them, all because he's worthy. Because at the end, we want to hear those words from Jesus Christ, right? Well done, thy good and what? Faithful servant. servant. That's the words that you want to hear. This is all for that one day that we stand before Jesus Christ and hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for this word of life. I thank you for the opportunity for us to hear and see this great example of Paul and Barnabas. But Father, I ask that you would help us not to stay amazed and enamored by the examples around us, but that we would imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. That we would be quick to lay our lives down, to endure the opposition and the adversity and the persecution, to be about the work of making disciples so that Christ would be more magnified in our lives as we live a life that's worthy of the gospel and that we will see Christ on display in the lives of many as they come to know him and the joy that he offers. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.